0: Welcome to the Biology of Trauma podcast, the show that provides professionals with the knowledge and tools for effective science-based solutions for the trauma healing journey. I am your host, Dr. Amy, and I've done the hard work so you can stop your in the searching, have a roadmap for your own work, and be able to help others more powerfully. Welcome to this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, Whether it's drugs, gambling, shopping, food, sex, addiction is classified as a mental health disorder, and yet it is really a symptom of dysregulation, a coping strategy to calm the inner chaos or pain that a person feels. Really helping them not feel what feels unbearable, whether grief, pain, or even boredom. As a board-certified addiction physician, I have been on the forefront of this condition and experienced the challenges of changing these patterns of addiction. There are a number of reasons why it is incredibly difficult. And the more tools we have, the better skilled we are. I wanted to interview Dr. David Feinstein about energy psychology for addiction treatment. He sent me his whole manual some time ago, and I was so impressed as I reviewed it. Knowing that it is my goal to bring you practical tools and information, I invited him for this episode. In this episode, we're answering the question How can we apply energy psychology to the seven stages of the addiction recovery process? Here's what you will learn how energy psychology is different than energy medicine, how energy psychology supports addiction recovery. We're actually going to walk through the seven stages of addiction in this episode and how energy psychology can help with the big emotions that come up during addiction recovery, how to even embrace the internal conflict that one will encounter during addiction recovery. This and more in this episode. And I want to now bring on my special guest for this episode. David is a clinical psychologist and a pioneer in developing innovative therapeutic approaches. He's had nine national awards for his books on consciousness and healing, including the USA Book News Best Psychology Mental Health Book of 2007 for Personal Mythology. He has served on the faculties of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and Antioch College and with his wife, Donna Eden, has built one of the world's largest organizations teaching the hands-on use of energy medicine.
1: It's really great to be back with you again, Amy. Um, you guys, I know that you have made really good choices to be studying with Amy. And um, I, I just want to say a little bit about energy psychology, which is a branch of energy medicine in the same way that psychiatry is a branch of conventional medicine Energy psychology focuses in on a very specific part of energy medicine, and that is how to shift behaviors, feelings, and thoughts. So that's, that's, and, and energy psychology is much easier to learn than energy medicine. Energy medicine, as Donna teaches it at least, has nine different energy systems that you're working with. In energy psychology, as it's most commonly practiced, you are only working with the meridians. You're only working with the acupuncture points. So it's easy. And not only that, not you're not working with hundreds of acupuncture points. You are working with about a dozen acupuncture points. So the basic protocol is actually very easy to learn. And what, uh, what is hard is knowing how to apply it effectively. And, as you know, addictions are particularly tri- tricky for psychologists, for therapists, because you're working against brain chemistry that has been hijacked. Um, and so there you are with talk, trying to undo things that are at a very deep level. And what energy psychology does is it lets you to... Still utilize the talk, but to go much beyond it, because when you tap on the skin, you are sending signals to the brain. And it seems almost magical to say that, but it's actually pretty well established now that tapping on acupuncture points converts mechanical energy into electrical energy. It's called mechanosensory Transduction. It's studied beyond energy medicine. It's some, it's one of those things that's known. So you have that going on for one thing is the tapping is generating electricity and those elect, that electricity becomes signals and these signals go then to the areas of the brain that are activated by what you're saying, thinking or imagining. So the words really activate an area of the brain. And then somehow in a way that's not well understood, those signals go through the connective tissue, which is, which includes a lot of collagen, which is a semiconductor. So it doesn't have to go through the nervous system, synapse through to synapse. It goes directly to the area that's needed. And it will have one of two effects. It will either activate. Or deactivate the arousal. So if you're going in, if you're dealing with um, a trauma or a, a memory of a trauma that has activated the amygdala, the thought, the words, the memory all put the amygdala into arousal, into a threat response. The tapping sends signals that deactivates, so it's bringing that arousal down. And that's an amazingly effective tool to have in your hands and in your clients' hands, so they can tap on themselves. On the other side of that, it can also send activating signals to areas of the brain that are involved with with managing stress so, so to the frontal areas of the brain problem solving so that you're getting those areas activated. And one of the fMRI studies that I think really explains a great deal about how energy psychology works. It was conducted in Australia at Bond University by Peter Stapleton, where she was working with people who were obese and wanting help with their eating habits, and so they focused on cravings, and the cravings were measured in the FMRI in a very ingenious way, which was that they w- they actually had set it up so that images could be flashed in front of the person's eyes, and so images of their favorite junk foods were flashed in front of their eyes, and just as you would expect, the Areas of the brain involved with motivation and with cravings lit up. Twelve sessions later, group sessions held twice a week for six weeks, and the same junk foods flashed in front of their eyes did not activate those parts of the brain. So you have a very simple model of how this can work with addictions. Okay. So
0: what I really um, love about that, David, is, you know, the theme in the years of working with addiction medicine patients was just this, a very strong sense of being a victim. And I have no control over what feels to be just a, a decision that my brain makes without, without my permission. And I feel out of control. I don't feel like I have anything that I can do. And this shifts all of that. And I love that.
1: Yes, that's it. It really feels like cheating as a, as a therapist who worked with people for 30 years before I learned tapping. And then having this just speeds up things up so much. So in addiction treatment, there are various. Ways of talking about stages of discovery, but of recovery, but, um, they all basically come down to seven different stages that can be sliced up in different ways. And like any model of human behavior, um, they're not perfect stages. People go from one to the next. They'll skip a stage. They'll go back. It'll go back and forth, but this identifies the basic, um, stages that a person goes through from when they start out with that addiction that amy was describing that this is not my choice it just takes me over and the first stage is called pre-contemplation we'll go over these one at a time then contemplation then determination then action then maintenance then termination and then recovery if a relapse occurs Okay, so to go through those one at a time, pre-contemplation. The person doesn't believe that the addiction is a problem. And they aren't there for help with their addiction. But if you're the energy therapist and your client is there who is an addict, they're probably there for a different reason. They're there because perhaps they had a couple of duis and the court assigned them or perhaps there's a spouse that says you have to get into treatment or or this this relationship can't continue so uh, or perhaps they're there to work on something totally different from their addiction perhaps they're trying to increase their confidence as a speaker because they have a job that requires giving talks. So whatever the reason they're there, it's not to help with their addiction. So that's, that's, um, starts off as a problem, particularly if the, it's a real challenge for the therapist, particularly if they are there because, um, the court or a spouse is really concerned about the addiction and they aren't. So. The um, the most common trap for the therapist is to do what everybody else has done, and that's to give advice and persuasion and show the statistics and show how alcoholism wrecks the liver and all of that. It's you you can do it, but it's useless. It's just um, eroding their trust in you a- as you do that. So, um, what you can do at this stage, however, is to really listen to them, to really get into their world, to see what is important to them. And where you can bring the energy psychology in, where you can bring the tapping in, is to find an issue that really matters to them. So perhaps they are, like the situation I talked about before, they are anxious about a talk that they have to give or... They are finding themselves getting triggered and yelling at their kids, or they are having anxiety about their income taxes. And you can tap on those types of issues. And again, with those issues, they're generally you have the amygdala in arousal, and you can quickly lower that arousal, and the person experiences that. They didn't expect it, they're surprised. And so you're really setting the stage for being able to use energy psychology when they are ready, if assuming that they will get out, go beyond the pre contemplation stage. Most people really are here when they come into therapy. They're they're not even in the action stage. So and one of the biggest sources of failure in addiction recovery by by people who have done really sophisticated research is working in the wrong stage so the person is in the determination stage and you're bring you're trying to get them to do things that are in the action stage and it's a mismatch so that's part of why this map is is really useful So from pre-contemplation to contemplation, this is when they are really thinking about quitting the addiction, whatever it is, whether it's a substance addiction or an addiction to a habit, an addiction to gambling, um, any any sort of behavioral or substance addictions, they're thinking about quitting. And that brings up a lot of feelings, and so – one of the ways to go about it is to consider the benefits of the addiction and the costs of the addiction. And those might be emotional, social, physical, intellectual, lifestyle. Um, And eventually, you get to a point where you can actually tap on accepting the costs. And that might seem counterintuitive, that you would tap on accepting the costs. Why wouldn't you tap on... Maximizing the costs, bringing it, making it larger in their mind, but it turns out that accepting one's behavior, accepting the cost, accepting that which you wish to change, is a key to changing it. And you can tap on that. So you can tap on. You can use terms. That, the very common phrases are even though, and so. Even though um, my kids get disgusted with me when I'm drunk, I deeply love and accept myself. So you're beginning to really recognize that okay, this is the behavior I'm doing, and affirming yourself while tapping so the signals go in more deeply. So that's the so those are some of the keys for. Um, <clears throat> Really the contemplation stage. The third stage is determination, which means translating the intention into planning and effective preparation. That involves meeting the need without incurring the costs. So that's, that's a big thing. But how do you do that? So how do people that don't have this addiction meet their needs, the needs that the addiction is serving? And sometimes that involves getting um, participating in a group of people that are, like if the person has a love of painting, getting the person a lot of reinforcement for that by being in a group of artists or um, being in a group with addicts that are giving up their addictions, um, being in situations where the buzz of life becomes more part of their everyday experience so that they don't need have as much need for um, the cost so, so so that's the preparation so that you're you're not just quitting something, you're also substituting in something that will be really positive And uh, you can tap on the internal, lots of objections that come up because as soon as you're thinking about quitting, there's part of you that's been doing this. There's a reason that you started it. There's all kinds of objections that come up and you can just tap on those. So that's, um, that's a really important use of tapping at this stage. When I say setbacks, I don't mean like they tried to quit and they got off the wagon, I mean, that there's setbacks even in the intention. So even though I don't want to give up smoking, I deeply love and accept myself, tapping on it, rubbing on energy points as you do it so that you are really working with their their intention, with their way of thinking about this. So you're very involved, step by step. With that. And um, you can also, in that planning stage, have them articulate a vision of life without the addiction. What would it be like? What would you do that would give you more highs, that would help you relax more? What are other ways? And formulating that vision, and then while holding it strongly, tapping. On about a dozen acupuncture points to really bring those in. David,
0: what I absolutely love that you touched on was this aspect of the inner conflict. And so often what I've seen practitioners do, and I did before I knew better, was I I was actually increasing the internal conflict by trying to convince them of how much more they needed to um, stop the behavior. And in the process, I'm actually contributing to more of the same behavior because of the increase in the internal conflict. And so being able to actually have a tool that I'm going to decrease that inner conflict, I think is brilliant at that point in the contemplation stage.
1: So uh, action is really the stage where the major effort and behavior change occurs and Often when you're in the action stage, you'll find yourself going back to the other stages. You'll find yourself having to redo your plans from the determination stage, or you may even find that you're not sure that you really, really want to do this. So you're back in the contemplation stage. One of the really important things in the action stage is to change how you respond to internal and external Triggers. So whatever cues a person has for anxiety will often lead to the addictive behavior. Can you change how they respond to that cue, to the feeling of anxiety? And you can. You can tap on the situation. So you imagine what caused the anxiety, so they are um going into work, and there's somebody that they have a hard time with, and this person criticizes them a lot, and you can have them imagine being in that person's presence while the person is being judgmental and simply tapping on it. So even though I'm feeling criticized, I deeply love and accept myself. Even though I'm feeling criticized, I know that this is more about them than me. Even though I'm feeling criticized, I'm the authority on my internal judgment. Even though I'm feeling criticized, I know who I am and I know I'm doing my best. Another thing that will come up in the action stage is unresolved emotional issues. That is often a big theme in the chapping. is that, um, you know, Dad dad would get drunk and he would yell at us and that's that's kind of the paradigm for for how my life is unfolding. I don't know why I don't like that, but we go back and we go back to dad to, to being in the presence of dad when dad is drunk and we tap on it, and we tap on all of The emotions and the fear and the wanting to hide and all, all the different aspects of that situation so that you lower the distress so that the person, the, the, the kind of test for it is the person can talk about the memory without being triggered. And when the person can talk about the memory or imagine, replay the memory without being triggered, without feeling the anxiety, without feeling the fear, without feeling the judgment, then you know that you've really had some resolution of that older issue. And also in this stage, you want to do everything you can to increase confidence, increase self-esteem. And again, tapping is simply a shortcut from talk therapy for working with those issues. So it's not that you say, I'm feeling more self-esteem. No, that's not how you do it. You do it by really looking at what it is in their life that they are using to judge their worth. What are they doing to really make a difference? And you you begin to work with those, uh, those measures and um, you, you look at where their confidence is wavering and particularly in terms of their confidence about overcoming their addiction so that <clears throat> they are able to meet that situation with increasing confidence. So, uh, so that's, that's the action stage. And then the maintenance stage is It's the relapse prevention stage. So they've made some progress now, and now it's time to really zero in on the progress that they've made to really reinforce it so that the new skills, the new coping methods are revisited. The um, emotional, if you don't do this stage well, then you're going to have a sense of failure in the final stage. So you you really want to go deep in reinforcing everything that succeeded. And another way of working with the maintenance stage is to anticipate difficulties and imagining coping successfully with the difficulties. And There may be 50 difficulties that they can imagine, or 20 or 30. And you can tap on each one. You can tap on their fear of that situation coming up. And you can tap on the image of them really succeeding. With So that's the maintenance stage. Termination. This is the testing your wings and moving on stage. And you know, they've done a lot of things now in the first five stages and you can reinforce all of them. So you um, can reinforce the ways that they've neutralized their self-defeating responses to triggers. They've healed major childhood wounds. They've adopted new strategies for dealing with pain, stress, and anxiety. They've increased their self-esteem and confidence. They've made lifestyle changes so that they are going out of treatment really with a you know a, a red badge of courage with 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 knowing that, that i i have succeeded in this i have really done this and the seventh stage has to do with relapse and if a relapse occurs recovery is Really natural because most people cycle through these stages. Most people don't just go stage one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six, and they're through. And so, if a relapse occurs, just don't judge it. Don't be disappointed. Just reframe it as a learning experience, and tap while reviewing the treatment successes and the steps in the steps into the relapse.
0: How do you know what to say? When you're tapping, I would be afraid of like having them say the wrong thing. (laughs) And then I'm like reprogramming the wrong thing.
1: Just stay engaged, stay engaged and it will come to you. And, and when you go off path, they give you feedback right away. It's, it's not like talk therapy where you can say the wrong thing and they don't say anything. It's more like, okay, um, even even though I, I messed up there, I'm feeling much more confident. And you just watch them turn white and you say, okay, that was leading the witness. I was leading the witness too much. So you want to stay tuned, very attuned to their responses to what you're doing. And one of the ways that you do it that's built in is not intuitive at all. And that is that at the end of every tapping session, you have them give a rating 0 to 10 of the amount of distress they're feeling about what it is that you're tapping on. So it's an 8, you do a round of tapping, and they say it's a 6. Then you know you're going in the right direction. If it's an 8, and at the end of three rounds it's still an 8, you know. then you might ask, okay, I have a sense by the fact that it's not going down, that I'm missing something. What am I missing? Or you might just, if if um, it goes from an eight to a five, you might say, well, what, what's keeping it at a five? And they might say, well, it's this tightness in my throat. And you say, okay. So then that informs you. The next tapping <clears throat> round is, even though I have this tightness in my throat, I deeply love and accept myself. Even though I have this tightness in In my throat, my shoulders are not as tense as they were before.
0: Now, as a practitioner, I think that there would be a tendency to avoid certain topics just because I would be afraid that we're going to get in too deep. And you mentioned all of them, right? Like the pain, stress, anxiety, uh, change, all all of that is... Is a, is a possibility that we're going to tap into something that is big and yet this is part of every addiction recovery process, every addiction recovery process. And the the reason for actually tapping on those things, help me understand, is it just to decrease the charge on them, the the internal conflict around them? Or why would we intentionally talk about those things as we tap on them? even like the the cost or the benefits, but it's it's at really every one of those stages that there was this opportunity to directly talk about a hard issue and tap on it.
1: Right. And there are stages in in that work. So you want to first really accept the fact that they are having whatever it is. So that they are you're helping them accept okay, this is where I am right now. Then you can tap on decreasing the responsiveness to it, decreasing the escalation of emotion. Once you've done that, then you can really start to do some cognitive restructuring that becomes very powerful.
0: It really seems like it's able to create um, maybe a more stable system of their nervous system to do that reprogramming while you're tapping. Is that... In essence, what's happening? It's like you're you're creating regulation in order to reprogram something that has had a lot of charge or maybe has been a trigger, a cue, these things that would normally automatically take our nervous system into a very activated aroused state, seeking that immediate solution. And we're we're able to just bring some regulation with the tapping to be able to explore those with a sense of curiosity rather than of probably just more anxiety in the sense of internal chaos.
1: Exactly. And This is very well stated. And when you're working with somebody with that reprogramming, they it's there's a back and forth because you'll see them get activated again. So you just you, you don't miss a beat. You just go back into, you know, whatever you're seeing, you know, I'm, I'm breathing more heavily right now. And and then and then and then right back into the reprogramming.
0: And those words, even though, seem really important for the reprogramming, David.
1: Yeah, yes, they 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 they're, they're brilliant. They they it goes back to Roger Callahan, and he just figured out a way to really help people to accept their situation and to. So so what you're doing is you're you're naming the problem preceding it with even though and then you're pairing it with something positive so that whenever the problem comes to mind you've Linked it with something positive. I, I deeply love and accept myself, or I'm becoming more um, powerful and competent. So, so, or, or, or I choose to know that I can handle this. So, those, those are. So that's, and generally that is done not during the tapping, but it's done while you massage neurolymphatic points that are clogged, and everybody that's living in this world has some. So you find the ones that have some tenderness and you massage those. And so that releases some energy and that somehow pairs the two sides of those statements.
0: But this process is going to be the same for no matter what addiction you're working with, right? Whether it's a substance or whether it's food or sugar or gambling the, the process, the essence of it will remain the same throughout.
1: That's, <clears throat> yes, that, that, you, I mean, you adapt it in many ways based on what the addiction is, but, but the, the, those basic seven, six steps plus the relapse step um, are, are pretty consistent. And, and then the tapping that you would do at each step is also pretty consistent. But you'd, you'd of course, be changing a lot of things based on the nature of the addiction.
0: I feel complete with what we've covered today. David, thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your work. And thank you for joining me today on this episode of the Biology of Trauma podcast. As we conclude this episode on the role of energy psychology in addressing addiction recovery, what did you think? please drop a comment in the show notes. There is a section I have created just for that. I want to hear what you got out of this, what resonated with you, and what you still have questions about. Recovery is a deeply personal journey, whether this is addiction recovery or trauma recovery, and we need all the tools we can have. And of course, as we do more trauma work, we are able to be more open, be in curiosity and exploration as we learn more about ourselves, apply new tools And also understand the people that we serve if you are also a healer. I will have the links to Dr. David Feinstein's website in the show notes, as well as a few other resources for you. Speaking of which, everyone coming in for detox off of a substance when I was running the detox unit was deficient in magnesium. Yes, it is actually one of the most common nutrient deficiencies in the Western world, and especially those who have had chronic stress and stored trauma. So if that is you, I will have a link for the magnesium that you would want to take one to twice a day. Internal chaos and internal conflict, you likely have magnesium deficiency because that takes up a lot of energy to deal with that chaos and conflict, and magnesium gets used up in making energy and clearing out inflammation. If you are curious about how addiction is a symptom of dysregulation, and even what does dysregulation mean you will want to understand the path out of that dysregulation as well. And I will include the links to the essential sequence guide, which is the essential sequence for addressing stored trauma in the body and where you can truly get an understanding of the physiology and the biology of that trauma response in the body because it is different than stress. There is a stress response and there is a trauma response and understanding that difference on a physiological level will help you understand the essential sequence to addressing stored trauma. If you are a healer or a self-help seeker, you will want to start with the foundational journey where I lead you experientially on a journey into your nervous system. It would be an honor for me to lead you to both a deeper understanding of yourself and the tools for regulation to lay that foundation for safely addressing stored trauma in the body. Because yes, there are ways for us to Not do that so safely. I'm your host, Dr. Amy, and until next episode, lots of love. Thank you for joining me today. If you enjoyed today's show, be sure to subscribe. We definitely will learn, laugh, and sometimes cry together on this healing journey, and you won't want to miss an episode. Give my podcast five stars, share it with a friend or colleague if you felt an impact as it truly helps get the word out and breaking the paradigm of how we do trauma work. I look forward to seeing you back here next week. Until then, this is your host, Dr. Amy, sending you lots of love.